This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of The Flamethrowers, Rachel Kushner's novel about the 1970s, the New York art scene, the radical riots in Rome, motorcycles, World War I, the blackout. Am I leaving anything out? Italian fascism. Italian fascism. Did you mention the futurists? The futurists, Brazilian rubber plantations. Brazilian rubber plantations, of course. Uh, so land I'm, art. Land art, right. <laughs> Spiral jetty. Salt flats. Salt flats. So I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review. I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio with Double X co-founder Hannah Rosen. Hi. Hi, Dan. And joining us from New York is Browbeat editor David Hegwind. Hey, David. Hi, Dan. So... As in all audiobook clubs, we will be talking about all the various plot things that happen in this book, many of which we already mentioned. So anyways, the point is maybe don't listen to us before you've read the book, unless you love being spoiled, in which case, listen away. But, you know, there are books where there's not that much plot to spoil, and then there's this book where there's so much plot, I mean, in the sense of things happening. And we were talking beforehand, this book got a great review from Dwight Garner in The Times. James Wood really liked it a lot. And there are acclaimed books that I read, and then that acclaim makes me angry because I'm like, oh, well, this book is obviously bad. These people are crazy. And then there are acclaimed books that I read where I just get sort of disappointed in myself because I feel like I and the book are like not on the same wavelength somehow. And that is how I felt about this book. And so your job, David and Hannah, over the course of this podcast is to um, explain to me why this book is great if it so happens that you think that it's great. Because I feel like I didn't get it. And in fact, at times, it didn't even like seem really like a novel to me. Wow. I know the book is great. And so therefore, I know the fault is with you, Dan. It must be with <laughs> right. you. Please explain. Because... Well, explain the greatness and also the fault, I guess, then. If we can, if we have time to get into both, that would be excellent. Yes, I will. Over the course of this podcast. So um, the book goes off in all kinds of different directions. But so let's start small in our discussion. Um, let's start with the center of the book. The center of the book is Reno. The main character, that's not her actual name. That's what everyone calls her because she's from Reno, Nevada. Wait, and it's important to say that is a nickname given to her, which she doesn't object to, just to set up the kind of emotional dynamics that sure. happen between her. Things are done on to Reno. That's part of why it happens. It's a very sentimental education feel to the way the novel rolls, at least for the first half of the novel, maybe the first three quarters. So, you know, she never bothers to correct the person who calls her Reno, who's a random person she's just met, and then that name sticks to her, and that's the name she goes by for the rest of the novel. That's important. Keep I talking. would, in fact, describe that characteristic is describing her for the second 95 one hundredths of the novel, which is to say that for like the first like 50 pages, I was totally into her and I thought she was interesting and she made interesting choices. But then for like the next 95% of the book, I felt like she in fact didn't make any choices at all. And as you say, things were done unto her. And so that in the end 
for me, was a real frustration with this book. I understand that there is a long literary tradition behind this, but that didn't stop me from making her seem kind of boring. That's interesting. I mean, that is effectively what the novel is about. That's the play between those ideas. It's called the flamethrowers because the flamethrowers are this unit in the Italian army who are always on offense, as they're described, and very significantly, they don't wear wristwatches. They have no sense of time. They don't sort of roll with things. They're just always on offense. So it's it's really about being passive or active, you know, taking action or not taking action. And as those ideas relate to art, as they relate to the difference between men and women, I mean, that idea is something that recurs a lot in the novel, whether you are passively living your life or actively living your life. And I don't think she concludes which mode is better. It's just something that plays back and forth throughout the novel. And that's what the title is about, I guess. See, anyway. I just didn't get the impression that she was playing those ideas against each other. Not Rachel Kushner, but I mean Reno herself. I got the impression she settled into a mode and basically followed it, and we were meant to settle into that mode along with her. David, what did you think? I'm somewhere between you two. In this instance, when it comes to Reno's passivity, I think Hannah has it right. It's, it's clear that that's partly what the novel is about. It happens again and again that she sort of falls into something. She actually becomes the fastest woman in the world, accidentally. She goes out to the salt flats for an art project and ends up riding this fancy motorcycle across the meta at a greater speed than any woman before her ever has. That's a little bit typical, I think, of both the character and the book, that she sort of passively stumbles into this remarkable feat. Later, she helps revolutionaries in Italy by accident. It's not just that, you know, she happens to go with someone to some place. She happens to do these things that are incredibly dramatic. Can I take that one step further? I mean, the way the novel is set up, she's pimped by people. Like she is from the very beginning effectively pimped by Ronnie Fontaine and turned over to Sandra Valero at every point in the novel. It's not that just things are happening to her, which is how she chooses to view her life. I'm a person who just believes in something. Like I believe in chaos. I believe in sitting back and letting things just happen to you. She says she believes in chance. That yeah, means she's more not to her, her life does. is not lived by chance. There are men in her life who are always engineering a life for her, handing her over to other men and doing things unto her like that very last story that uh, the great storyteller Ronnie Fontaine, who's essentially, you know, he's like the Rachel Kushner. He's the one who's always telling the great stories about a cabin boy. That's Reno. I mean, she's somebody who's, you know, pimped by people, dressed by people, given characteristics and names by people. So and then I think something slightly different happens at the end of the novel when the riots happen. But we'll get to that later. Are we helping you at all, Dan, to become well, a guess, better person and understand? I guess, but I mean, I guess I don't disagree with you that her passivity is a point of the book, but that doesn't mean that I thought it like worked. Like it right, just made right. me bored. Or, like right. like because I feel like if that is the point of the book that she's passed around by men, then that point is made like from page one. And it seems to me to be a point that is harmed. By the fact that the time I find her most interesting are the rare times in the book where she actually does make decisions for herself that are outside the scope of the things that the men in her life want her to do. Like when she does decide that she's going to like exert some subtle pressure to get to go to Italy or when she, in fact, rides this motorcycle across the salt flats in pursuit of this crazy project of hers, which other people in the art world sort of don't even really get. Like I liked her in those moments. I thought she was fascinating in those moments. 
And I just thought she was a much less interesting character in the book, a much less interesting read when the point of it became that she is passed around hither and thither by men. If only she had listened to Gloria Gaynor and not Nina Simone, then she might have <laughs> <laughs> she might have taken charge of her life. You know, Dan, I'm actually with you to a degree. I mean, I think that one can, you know, pull out many ideas from this book, but while reading it, though I admired the prose pretty much throughout, I often found myself frustrated and for similar reasons. Part of it was her character, though I understood that she was meant to be passive. Um, and I think, Hannah, your point about her being pimped is very well put. But also Sandro, for instance, I just thought was mostly a cipher. I didn't find him terribly interesting. He gets some passages later in the book to kind of reflect and you get more of his inner life. But even still, I just, I never understood why he was a minimalist artist Started to come to an understanding near the end, but it seemed a bit late. And, you know, Ronnie, too, I found him intriguing at the beginning. I found his story about the cabin boy really boring and way too long and also <laughs> also not at all believable. I mean, this novel is basically in a realist mode, but it's uh, exaggerated. I mean, there's so many things that are hard to believe if you stop and think about them, which maybe you don't because, like I said, the prose is is great and really gripping for the most part. But his story, just nobody talks like that. And I just found myself waiting for that particular sort of yarn to be over. But he's explicitly like that. Like he stands outside the novel as the one person who talks not like people talk. Like from the very – I was the very first words out of his mouth are very much words that the author is writing. He's describing Roy Orbison's hair. And he describes his hair. They go into like, a, I guess, the diner. I don't remember if it's the – what's the diner that Giddle works at? The Tasty the Diner? The Tasty, yeah. yeah. the Tasty Diner. I don't remember if it's that's the diner they walk into. But he describes Roy Orbison's hair as looking like melted vinyl. Now, that's clearly – that's how Rachel Kushner writes. That's I mean, the one thing that's, I think, the most amazing about this novel is you can pick out a description of any person in this novel. And it is the most exquisitely original – an efficient description, I think, of characters anywhere. She's just incredibly good at, in three sentences, coming up with a fantastic visual description of different characters. And then he comes out with this, which is her. So it's like Ronnie Fontaine is always slightly outside the realist world. I mean, this whole novel plays with that, right? Like, you never know if these people are real or not. Like, I Googled Flip Farmer, as I'm sure a lot of people did, to find out if Flip Farmer was an actual race car guy who was in the salt flats and it flipped and had a terrible accident. He doesn't exist, you know, right. and I Googled Valera. Helen I mean, Hellenberger. Helen Hellenberger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so she she's always kind of doing that. There's a distinction to be made between creating composite characters. I mean, there's someone um, that one of the reviews mentioned, there's a guy named Breedlove who maybe farmers loosely based on. There's other inspirations for various characters. It's one thing to create fictional characters in a novel and another thing to put a character in that novel, you know, a novel that is essentially a realist novel, to put a character who appears to have stepped into it from some other place who talks like nobody in that world or ours would speak. I don't, I don't quite follow the purpose of having a character talk that way. Well, and that's sort of in a broader context, I feel like the novel as a whole made me feel like I wrote this over and over again on the pages that this section, you know, I would be reading a section. I'd be like, this section is amazing, but what the fuck is it doing in this book? Like what? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> like, the, like I mean, basically the entire history of the Valera family 
from the World War One sections to the rubber plantation section. Oh, no. God, those are totally necessary. So All can right. I just step in here? That, so <laughs> I understand what you guys are saying about Reno being a character who drags a little bit. But one of the interesting things I thought about this novel is that there are a lot of ideas in the novel, and she holds them, I think, pretty lightly. So, so the ideas are carrying the novel, even if Reno is not carrying the novel. So that passivity and activeness is something that she overlays on for example, the Brazilian rubber plantation, right? The same ideas that are circling around Reno and that you're meant to think about also about the art world. Like it's unclear to me whether Rachel Kushner disdains art. It is and, not and, unclear to me whether she disdains <laughs> the art world. Though. And the art world is me- it's meant to be – you're meant to not exactly understand what the hell anybody's art is doing. Like she, she's a little bit wry about that, but I don't think anybody's art is supposed to exactly make sense, right? There's that guy who just collects the neon tubes just because he wants people to think he's making art. No, no. Right? He makes neon sculptures like Dan Flavin. But he doesn't actually yeah. – make the sculptures, yeah, he right? Does. It's There's like one on the roof of the bar. But at some point he's just collecting neon to make the people in his workspace think that he's making new neon. It's like not exactly real. She does not take seriously what art thinks that it's doing. Like it's always slightly unclear what the artists do. You know, so that's her sort of reflection on the passivity of the art world or the theoretical nature of the art world. But in terms of the rubber plantation, like they're acted upon just like she's acted upon. It's like a large political landscape for her idea about, you know, being pimped or being passive or sort of living your life that way. Like it's one thing if it's like a nice young woman living through New York City. It's quite another thing if it's these Brazilian rubber workers who you don't even tell them that the war's over, right? Like you lock them in a sense of timelessness and you exploit them essentially. So so I feel like those are the same ideas, but they're carried into lots of different contexts without her being so explicit and kind of knowy about it all. I don't know. I am not convinced that the ideas provide a, an actual coherent framework over the course of this novel to support all these different things. And, and if, as you say, what's supposed to carry us through it is not Reno, who doesn't do anything but has things done to her, but instead the framework of the ideas, I just found the ideas from section to section incoherent enough that that even I felt like close, careful reading was not bringing them into focus for me. Even the various meditations on time that recur throughout the novel, like how people experience time. Like she has that, I thought, a just great riff about the Housewives mm-hmm. and Time magazine, the housewife who discovers a meteorite who falls on her. But before that happens, she talks about how housewives think that their single luxury and the way they gain control of their lives is by squandering time. And so they're in the passive mode, the kind of non-flamethrower mode, and then just down drops this meteorite, which is like a flamethrower. And then the housewife suddenly moves into this other mode, kicks the other housewife out and says like, okay, this is my way of joining the world. I just loved all her her sort of meditations on how people experience time and particularly how time works differently on men and women. Like women are trapped in time and men are not necessarily trapped in time. But in fact, at one point she says, well, one of my favorite sections, in fact, in the book was one very brief section where she sort of even says the opposite about men and women, which is when she gets back to New York after her adventure in Italy and she gets her motorcycle back, the Moto Valera. And this is, I'm going to read this section on page 297. And she gets this amazing motorcycle, which everyone loves, which it's like a limited edition. Hardly anyone has it. There was a performance in riding the Moto Valera through the streets of New York that felt pure. It made the city a stage, my stage, where I was simply getting from one place to the next. Ronnie said that certain women were best viewed from the window of a speeding car, the exaggeration of their makeup and their tight clothes. But maybe women were meant to speed past, just a blur, like China girls. She's referring here to a previous job she had being photographed for film leaders. Flash and then gone. It was only a motorcycle, but it felt like a mode of being. 
But I think at the end, something different happens. We haven't gotten there yet. Like, I think there's a moment at which she she cuts herself off from being pimped. Like, she sees Sandro Valera kissing his cousin Talia in Moto Valera. And then she just kind of, like, steps out of the life that people have made for her and that people have engineered for her. And she walks into another life in which her passivity operates in a slightly different way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? It operates in a slightly different way. I was wondering where you're going with that, Hannah, because she steps into the arms of Gianni, another man who pimps her in a differently. I mean, he gets her to, to take him to France so he can, you know, escape the law in Italy, and she doesn't even know what she's doing again. I mean, I, I think if you were going to suggest that she eventually steps outside of her passivity, it, it only doesn't happen happens. There. No, it only happens in the last few sentences of the book where she looks at this very um, symbolically loaded blank mountain, Mont Blanc, at this white space and says, you know, she she's ready to move on to the next question. You know, if you think that she has an epiphany at all, it happens right then, but never before, as far as I can tell. Okay, can I just, all right, let me try this one thing, okay? <laughs> Maybe this thing totally won't work, but I'm going to try it. Right. So, so here's what I was thinking about the end. So, you know, she has this idea that chance, right? Things happen, chance, chaos. There's like the directed flamethrower, and then there's the other people who are kind of slowly making their way through chance. Now, mobs are a place where chance and chaos and unruliness are the same as action. It's like a chaotic kind of action. It's not exactly a sort of organized offense, but it's something different, right? It's something different. When she enters the mob and the sort of street mob and all that, what's happening at the end of the book is she's, you know, walked into a life of like literally someone is writing a story for her the way Ronnie Fontaine writes story. You will move here. You will do this. You will go out with her to a place in which chaos is action. So that's what I meant by a slightly different form of passivity, like a slightly different way of seeing the relationship between you know, intentional action and non-intentional action. So that's why I thought where she put herself at the end was different than where she was at the beginning. Dan right. is looking at Let's me continue like... this discussion in a moment. <laughs> but so first, let's pause for a word from our sponsor, audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a very special offer for audiobook club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you get a free audiobook of your choice. Not our choice, your choice. Uh, You just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. And so what will that free book be? Well, it could be The Flamethrowers, except presumably you've already read that. So here we like to recommend next month's audiobook club selection, which is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which Audible has in a full cast production, in fact, like radio play style, a special 20th anniversary edition. And that seems like a totally awesome way to experience that book. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. And once again, please use our URL so Audible knows that you are an audiobook club listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash Slate A, B, C. All right. David, I'll just let you just tear into Hana now. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if tearing into her is what I'm going to do. But I, I mean, so far, Hana, I should say, so far, I think most of your points about the book are, are extremely well put. And I, I think the ideas seem to drive the novel more than the characters, which is, I think, partly, Dan, why you may have found it boring and also why I was occasionally frustrated by it. But one of the ideas that I struggled with and that you've sort of touched on, I think, Hannah, is is the whole idea of sort of action 
as beauty or whatever it is. It's a very futurist notion, and it's a lot of what I think the reviewers are responding to who love this book, talking about how exciting it is and and how bright and, and vivid it is. There's a whole ideology there which is sort of horrifying, and I'm not suggesting that Kushner adopts it quite, but I, I didn't quite understand the critique she was making if she was making one. It seemed she was kind of milking motorcycles and flame and, and all of this for their vibrant qualities without, I don't know, quite getting at the horror of the violence beneath it, which is certainly, you know, certainly appears sporadically in the novel, but didn't quite hit with the force that I wanted it to hit with. Okay, so there I really disagree because I think her criticism of action is completely clear. Like Birdmore, who's the head of the motherfuckers, is like the biggest motherfucker in the book, right? Like the things he says are repugnant. He's got this weird thing he does with with Giddle where he's like slapping her all the time. The way he talks about women is obviously repugnant. And, you know, even the description of the flamethrowers at the end of the book, that is an absolutely tragic moment when Roberto, the sort of less pleasant brother of Sandro, you know, torches his little brother's favorite toys. She's very critical of that form of direct action. Even when describing the flamethrowers, Valera, the, the father of the two brothers, says, you don't want to be those people. I mean, he says it explicitly. They're idiots. Like, they're they're meatheads, basically. Right. He calls who, them a hopeless lot who kept getting shot because their tanks were so cumbersome. Yeah, and they just come like, blah, and, you know, and <laughs> like the Titans or the Cyclopses and get shot in the eye. Like, you just not, you know, we've been reading The Lightning Thief in my house lately. <laughs> but, you know, they are the meathead Cyclops. You know, they're just not the they're not the people that you want to be and so and i think your sympathies might not lie with reno but but her sympathies lie with reno i mean i think reno works because she is an exquisite observer and slightly naive and she's she's a little bit the loser in this novel but yet her sympathies lie with reno and reno so represents the anti-flamethrower that even implicitly making Reno the central character of the book is a criticism of that form of direct action. So your read on this book is that it is specifically and explicitly anti-flamethrower, anti-action, anti-speed. No. No. No, no, because Reno loves speed. Just that it's right. thinking about those ideas. It's sort of putting them in opposition to each other and not exactly deciding. Just like Reno, not exactly <laughs> coming down on one side. No, it's very – I think it's rare to have a novel – which plays with ideas and is not ideological, which is not too heavy with its ideas, which is, you know, placed in history, sometimes recent history, sometimes deeper history, but is not kind of in love with its own knowledge of that history. I think that's really rare, which is maybe not, you know, ideal in the way that it's character driven, but which still has such exquisite character descriptions. Like, I think all of those things are very difficult to pull off. And even the other thing you said didn't make any sense to you, why these digressions into the Valera family. I mean, that felt to me a little bit like, you know, when you have these kind of sentimental education characters who are being taught and led by certain people, like they're the rootless ones, right? They're the ones who are moving from place to place to place. And so you have to oppose them with something that is like deeply rooted and in place. And that's the Valera family. Yeah, like, but you would get that even if you just put her in that mansion and had to deal with that woman. The mom? You didn't need like 50 pages of Valera history necessarily. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the book opens with Valera, right? braining somebody with a headlamp to a motorcycle, which, again, it's this very vivid, striking uh, section, but I'm still puzzling over why you would open the book that way. Um, likewise, just to describe for listeners some of the sort of 
strangenesses of the book. There are also occasional photos, which I have nothing against using black and white photos, but they felt pretty haphazard to me. It wasn't clear to me that they really added much and there didn't seem to be a lot of... I mean, so the the book has this kind of um, messy quality, but it's not messy throughout. This is going to sound very maybe stupid. I feel like the book was sporadically messy. Like it actually is quite streamlined in certain respects and then there'd be something that didn't seem to fit. But that's like, do you know that Siebold, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because he's German, a Siebold, Siebold novel, which yeah, always has this... random photographs in it. It's like when novelists do that, which they have been doing for a while, that's like the arch, you know, is this real? I think even James Wood started his review this way saying, you know, there's a long debate between realism and postmodern non-realism. And this novel just kind of breaks right through that. I totally disagree. I'm just, sorry. Sebald, Sebald, it's all about suggestion and evocativeness and the, the photos sort of deepen the mystery and make it strange. She has a still from a movie that then the character talks about. It's not the same thing. I, I just think it's much it, – those that particular decision felt much clumsier. Now, again, Kushner demonstrates her intelligence throughout the book, so maybe I'm just not getting it. But I think she, if she's up to something with those pictures, it, it's got to be something different. Right. I mean, I guess that was, well, I guess, one of the problems I had with this book and with my reading of it is that it is so clear the animating intelligence behind this book, and it is so clear that Rachel Kushner has a million ideas in play and a million different things going on, and this amazing control over her prose on a sentence to sentence level. That one of the things that frustrated me was that I felt like. It never got wrangled in a satisfactory way. And I'm not asking for it to be tied up in a little bow, but I am asking for me to get a sense that even if I am not fully grasping all the issues at play, that the author does have her hands like firmly on the wheel. And instead, I guess to sort of extend the metaphor is from one in this book, it felt like a book that would like rev up and get faster and faster and faster and then would just like completely skid out. And then the book would pick itself up and then shake itself off and and someone would like say, ah, how many fingers am I holding up? And then the book would zip off again and it would be great. And then it would like completely skid out of control again with some like fucking thing about like some long monologue from the neon artist about who knows what that he talked into a tape recorder that went on for five pages. It just felt like over and over again, the book lost control of itself in a way that frustrated me. And maybe I should just like deal with it. And that is the, the kind of book that this is. And there are pleasures in that, too. And a lot of those sections were very enjoyable to read. And it wasn't like I was ever unhappy with the words. But it did make me feel at the end, well, what did I go through all this for? Wow. I just did not have that experience. Maybe I gave her more leeway because she talks so much about time that I kind of the flashbacks mm -hmm. and the way and the movements through time. Like she talks about that being chaotic and subjective, essentially, that the way people experience time is completely subjective, whether it moves quickly or it moves slowly. Or you think that crashes, you know, she has a thing about how people say crashes happen in, in, in slow motion, in slow motion, really but out. actually they go really quickly. And so one of the things that she was doing in writing the novel this way is thinking about the subjectivity of time and so of what scenes get a lot of time and what flashbacks happen and what don't and which bits of history. So it, it gives you a little bit of indulgence, a room to indulge yourself when you've set up the idea that it doesn't have to be like, you know, Dickensian, like it doesn't have to go from A to B to C to D. Like you can you can play around with when things happen and how long they last and it doesn't always make perfect sense. Yeah, but that also allows a great deal of sloppiness, I feel like, in stuff like the way those last scenes with Gianni are presented 
she ends up back in New York and she alludes to these terrible things that happened in Rome after she got kicked out of the house that she'd been staying in. But in fact, nothing really that much happened. Do you guys know what happened? I, I read it again and I, I and I felt, you know, that's the one place where I felt stupid. Like I couldn't exactly understand what she had done. Did she actually drive? She drove the getaway car. She drove Gianni's getaway car. When he to... was getting away from what? The heat seemed to be on him, but we don't know for what. Possibly it was something having to do with the Valera family because later in time, Roberto is kidnapped and eventually killed. But we don't know exactly what he did or what he what the heat is on him for. But she drives him to the border, straps some skis on him. He goes up a ski lift and is supposed to ski across the border. She can get across the border because she has an American passport and she's supposed to meet him on the French side of the border, though he never shows up. But what we don't know necessarily, we don't think that he, well, it's implied, I guess, but not sure that he had something to do with the kidnapping and ultimate assassination of Roberto. Well, maybe, but also maybe he's dead. Like by the time that happens, we don't even know if he ever made it down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I got the sense that she was implying that she had something to do. I think she maybe feels even culpable a, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's never spelled out. And I don't know if, if you went back and kind of combed over those pages, you would find the evidence for it or not, or if it's just supposed to be her sort of her sense of lingering guilt that she helped this guy who was on the side of the people who ultimately killed Roberto. That may be all that it is. Uh, it, it was it was hard to tell. And it's sort of typical to some extent of the structure of the book where she delays things when you first meet Talia, Roberto and Sandro's cousin. She says something like, you know, I, I didn't realize that she would take away something that meant so much to me. And it sort of hints that later on she's going to take Sandra away, which is what happens, but she doesn't tell you that until many pages later. And it's it's a way, obviously, of sort of creating suspense and maybe also reflecting Reno's own experience of the time, but there are occasions where it felt a little uh, clumsy. I think that's what happens between her and Ronnie at the end when, you know, the way the novel is set up, she meets Ronnie first and sleeps with him first, and then they come back around to each other at the end, and there's the sense that he kind of holds a torch for her in some way, and but then he ultimately says that essentially she doesn't get things. I can't remember exactly how he puts it. There's something you never – there's some things you never seem to forget. No, that's not right. Hold on. I'll find it. It's at the very end when he – Yeah, when she's like, oh, you're saying that you can't fall in love with me. Oh, wait. I found it. Page 316. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay. So this is Ronnie and Reno having a conversation in which they're thinking about getting together. And he says, you just seem too young, and you were. But honestly, I don't know if you'd be different older. I like you, but there's something you never seem to get. And then she completes the thought, and that's why I can't love you. But here's a problem I have with that. And I remember that passage. And speaking back to David's notes that occasionally we get these little hints of Reno reflecting on these experiences, you know, saying of Talia, well, someday she would take something terrible from me. Like, there's a sense that we're seeing this from the future. I think I would have liked this novel a lot better if Reno had narrated it from, like, when she was 45. Mm -hmm. And she had perspective on these. And she could put the pieces of her life together in a way that I guess is maybe a little more traditional or a, or a little more coherent. But I feel like there were sections in this book where I wished for a little bit of a, like adult grown-up perspective on the things that these people were doing. And the book seemed to me a little bit of a cop-out in some ways because Rachel Kushner obviously has that adult perspective and she has it on certain aspects of it. She has it on the politics 
of the book. She has it on the Valero family sort of and their history. And she really, really has it. She has a very jaded, very grown up perspective on the personae of the art world. The book reflects this notion that great art and stupid art can both be made by great or stupid people, but mostly stupid people, right? Almost everyone in the art world in this book are total buffoons. And that to me is is a very specific grown-up satire of the art world as opposed to being really Reno's view of it then. Her view of it then was that it was all pretty exciting, probably. I mean, she's 21. And so it frustrated me that like that same sort of jaded eye couldn't occasionally be put towards the story this book itself was telling. And I, and I felt like I would have liked it maybe a lot more if it had been. Okay, that's really interesting. Now I'm really thinking about that. How would the novel have been different? Because you, you make me realize something, which is Reno is an unsettled character. She walks a very fine line between being a fine observer right. and a, a kind of likable character and being just slightly too naive. Like there's one early on conversation between her and Giddle, who's the hard-bitten cynic of their half-assed friendship and she says to Giddle why would he be interested in me you know why would this guy Sandro call the studio (laughs) and Giddle's like what are you stupid like because you're 21 and he's you know she keeps a gap in your two yeah you have a gap exactly your cake box your your slightly ruined cake box face and and you wonder like so is she really nice I think that's a very hard line to walk like you're creating a character who's you know being acted upon and being shown things but who has to know just enough to kind of make it through the novel and be interesting whereas it might have been very different if she had looked back and described herself as somebody naive like if she were an older woman and looking back and saying, I was this naive person. And then her observations would have made more sense. You wouldn't have had to strain so hard to give her just enough observations to make things interesting. I don't know. Maybe that novel would have been insufferable, that novel in my head. Maybe it just would have been her laughing at her 21-year-old self the way we all laugh at our 21-year-old selves. Maybe you can't write a novel like that, but... But I yeah, there agree. are things that you marvel at when you're 21. Like for some reason, this this is – I mean she's a much better writer than this. But the sentence that she notices about Sandro early on, he knew how to unbutton buttons. <laughs> <laughs> that really stuck with me for some reason. Like right. that's, that's right something you would notice job, right? when you were 21. Right. Yeah. Uh, Boy, this guy can really give a hand job. It's like, just something right so – I mean the way she plays with the kind of ethereal and the concrete I always think is really great. And especially when she's talking about seduction, when she's talking about Valero is – some point early on in the novel when she's looking back at his history and he's got this crush on this Marie or Maria is her name Marie that's sort of lovely woman who seems to be chaste and he's he's sort of longing after her yeah. and then he sees his heart's broken because he sees Marie kind of sneak out of the house and get on the get on the motorcycle of this asshole Frenchman as he calls him and he gives himself a pep talk and he says don't despair be patient and get a cycle with a combusted engine <laughs> it's just That's a great pep talk. Here's the quote I really love from the book that I just want to mention because I think it also sort of gets at the heart of why the book ended up frustrating me. You know, in many books, there's a moment when a character sort of issues a state of my world speech or like words to live by. And for her, it comes really early in the book. um, And it has a lot to do with almost everything that happens during the rest of the book, Reno and She's talking about Pat Nixon, actually, on very early in the book. Oh, on that's page really four. great. I love that. Um, she's talking about how she she's annoyed that Rosalind Carter is going to be the new first lady because Pat Nixon is so hard bitten and a Nevada girl and a chain smoking pain in the ass. But she loved her, and she says, "People who are harder to love pose a challenge, and the challenge makes them easier to love. You're driven to love them. People who want their love easy don't really want love. 
Now, so, okay, that is like a, an amazing, badass thing to say. But from my perspective as a 38-year-old, it just makes her sound like a moron. Like, that isn't actually necessarily true. It just makes you sound like a 21-year-old. And so I wish that at that moment, 45-year-old Reno had said, of course, this is crazy. Right. Oh, I see. I see. That's funny. You know, I, I read that and I thought that was fairly crude for her. Like, she doesn't step out that much or make these proclamations that much. And I thought you were going to read something else, which is because I'm I'm kind of eternally infatuated with her descriptions. And so she describes Pat Nixon as a ratted beauty parlor tough and <laughs> Rosalind Carter as having a big, blunt, friendly face glowing with charity. Yeah. Those descriptions are great, but the passage as a whole is one of my least favorite, you know, largely for the reason that Hannah just articulated. I should say I I think the book does many, many things well, and I'm also a little wary of the fact that we have two men here who didn't like the book and one woman who did, and we're sort of recreating this gender dynamic that has been thrust upon the book by certain (laughs) critics, which I don't think is really fair because if Dwight Dwight Garner loved it, James Wood loved it, et cetera. But, you know, the book is partly about gender, certainly, and often very intelligently so. For me, the weakest moments were those when sort of history burst in in a kind of clumsy way. And it gets at this question you're raising about perspective, which is that Reno is watching the world go by and these and these rather momentous and important things are happening. She's sort of trapped in her own experience of them. We don't quite want the novel to be trapped in her experience of them, or at least if it is, we want the novel to somehow be aware that it's trapped in her experience. So for instance, when the blackout happens or when she's at the riots in Rome, like these things are much bigger than her. And you want to feel that the novel understands that. And perhaps it does. Uh, There were times when it felt like these things were being reduced to someone else's, not just one person's experience, but an outsider's experience in a way. Like that moment when she's in the riot and all the women are so upset about the way that women are treated in Italy. And Reno says, I took their rage and negotiated myself into its fabric. I fused my sadness over something private to the chorus of their public lament. And I mean, that's great for her, but there are a lot of really screwed up women in Italy in 1977. And that, I don't know, that that seems like sort of rude. Although she does pull out that horrible story of that pregnant woman who's totally exploited and yes. then gives up her baby. And so she does give us one moment of recognition that yes. these horrible things are happening but to the locals. But notably, Reno does not do anything about it. Why would she? Right. Well, and likewise, Kushner gives that one chapter to the you know indigenous worker in Brazil, which to me felt like a way of saying, I realize that there are real people who's, who suffered these things. But it also feels... Like, that's all that the chapter is doing is saying that. And that's maybe not enough. You want the novel to somehow be constructed in a way that you don't need that chapter if it's not what the novel's about. Maybe that's not fair. But that was my experience reading it. All right. Well, thank you, both of you, for uh, this very lively conversation. Hannah, I'm definitely more convinced of why I am stupid. 10%? 10 like 30% more convinced of okay. why I'm stupid. No, I as I have said before about this book, it's that there's obviously – a huge amount going on, and I just got frustrated that I was not putting it together. And you definitely helped me put it together in interesting ways, uh, even if I don't exactly buy it yet. But I definitely recommend it at any rate because it has some totally magical passages. David, how about you? Yeah, I think people should read it. I should also say that I was almost never, except for that Cabin Boy story, I was I was almost <laughs> never bored. They should have just the replaced book. that with the movie Cabin Boy with Chris yes. Yeah. They should with put Chris that on like in the paperback edition. Almost never bored. Right. <laughs> that is higher praise than it sounds. Oh I think, my god! There, I if think I can most, say that about every book. Yeah, yeah. I think geez. most books are boring. This one definitely is not. <laughs> and I am 
laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and I am also very curious about Kushner's next book. Yeah. Because she's obviously an extremely good writer in many, many ways. David Hagelin. <laughs> Sorry, my Extremely good. No, no, I just love David Hagelin, Blurb Machine. Uh, and Hannah, yes, a definite recommend from you. Yeah, clearly. I love it. Yeah. I love it. All right, so uh, program note. In our next audiobook club, we're discussing Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Read it or listen to it on audible.com and then join us for our discussion on October 4th. And then, you know, watch the movie when it comes out in late October, early November, but listen to us first. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show when you subscribe. You can just search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and uh, please also leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And for Hannah Rosen and David Hagland, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.